We've been journeying through the book of Luke together. And the book of Luke is for people who are hurting, for people who are doubting, for people who are confused, for people who are unsure about all of this. Because Luke wrote this book for two reasons. He wrote to a letter or to a man named Theophilus, kind of a wealthy dude. And this guy was, he was struggling with some of his own doubts and questions about whether he really belonged in the faith. And he wrote the book, it says in the beginning of Luke, for two reasons. He wanted to give an orderly account of the life of Jesus. So he lays out before us, and we're kind of marching through this book slowly but surely, the life of Jesus, what it looked like, why he came. And then the second reason he gave Theophilus, because he wanted Theophilus to have certainty about the things which he had been taught. He wanted Theophilus to have certainty about who Jesus was and and who he claimed to be. So we're going to look at the Gospel of Luke and we're going to see who Jesus is. And last week, a couple weeks ago, I mean, we learned about the king's coming and John the Baptist kind of proclaiming that there's one coming, the strap of whose sandal he's unworthy to untie. And then last week, we learned about the king's identity, where we saw Jesus baptized, like Elliot mentioned, before he prayed. And this week, we're going to learn a little bit about the king's message. And we'll see that the grace of Jesus goes to the people who seem furthest from Jesus. So turn in Luke chapter 4, if you have your Bible. We're going to look at verse 14 through 30 together. God's word says, Then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity. He was teaching in their synagogues, being praised by everyone. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said to to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, doctor, heal yourself. We've heard what took place in Capernaum. Do here in your hometown also. He also said, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But I say to you, There were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's days when the sky was shut up for three years and six months while a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy and yet not one of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up drove him out of town and brought him to the edge of a hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we 
are people who need you. We need your words to give us light. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead us, God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll look at um, three aspects of Jesus' grace today. Um, The first is the power of Jesus' grace. We're at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. He's been baptized. The Spirit has fallen on him in the physical appearance as a dove. And he has now been tested in the wilderness. Remember, Satan tempted him with three temptations that we have recorded in the Bible. And Jesus overcame all of those temptations. Never sinned. And he's beginning his ministry in the area of Galilee. And Galilee is in northern Israel. We have a picture here. Um, You can kind of see it up in the blue. It's a little small, I know. But this is where Jesus kind of grew up. This was his county that he lived. And remember, this is the backwoods town of Galilee. Um, We have a saying in Pennsylvania that you have Pittsburgh and we have Philadelphia and everything in between is Pennsylvania, right? This is Pennsylvania, all right? This is the middle of nowhere in the Roman Empire. And this is where Jesus began his ministry and where he grew up. And the text tells us that the news about Jesus was spreading really, really fast. You know, we live in a time of Twitter, the 24-hour news cycle, and, and so forth, where we, we're able to see like what happens in the world almost instantaneously, probably too fast. And, but news about Jesus was going viral as well. He was getting a lot of views on TikTok. He, like people knew all about him. And if you live in a small town, this doesn't really surprise you because news travels fast. But Jesus is zipping around Galilee and he's going from synagogue to synagogue. And we see that news about him is spreading, but his teaching ministry is also spreading. So he's, he's generating buzz about just by nature of who he is, but he's also kind of a prolific teacher in that he goes from synagogue to synagogue and place to place, and people gather around to hear him speak. And this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is his campaign for king. You know, every four years or so, um, we have candidates like go back and forth, crisscross the state, advertising who they are, putting on their their message, rubbing shoulders with people in diners and bars and so on. And those who are the most popular seem to get the greatest following and the biggest venues. Well, here Jesus is going throughout Galilee kind of candidate Jesus laying out who he is, his platform, and we see that he is spreading a message of grace, and it keeps drawing people in. But where did Jesus get the power for this, to go from place to place? Well, right at the beginning of our text, we see that in verse 14, that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. That Jesus' ministry was done by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that this is where he gets the power for his message of grace. In 
Luke has been super emphatic about the importance of the Holy Spirit in the lives of God's people. Back in chapter 1, so that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. We saw that the Holy Spirit came over the Virgin Mary in the, uh, the miraculous conception of Jesus. We saw that Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and then he prophesied in the same way Simeon was also filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit came upon Jesus at his baptism. The Spirit is who led Jesus into the wilderness and it is the Spirit now leading Jesus into his ministry. And if I can just give you a sneak preview of what would happen about three years from this text is that the Spirit would fall upon the church and send them into ministry. But here we are, that Jesus does things by the power of the Spirit and he spreads a message of grace because he's empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. That's the power of grace. But what about the people of grace? Who is this grace for? The text moves from a big general statement, like like verse 14 and 15, they're kind of like the newspaper headline. Jesus began his ministry in Galilee, and then it, then it kind of zeroes in on the place of Nazareth, the very hometown of Jesus. He's going from synagogue to synagogue there. People are curious about his teaching. And now we get this one account of when he steps into a synagogue one Sabbath morning, and he gets to give the sermon. So Jesus is chosen to read some scripture and explain it. Someone hands him the scroll of Isaiah. These were not probably like like little pieces of paper like this. Someone hands him a scroll and it's like, hey, Jesus, this is what you get to read from. And Jesus must have known his Bible because back then the Bible didn't have um, any verse numbers any section headings, chapter divisions, or anything like that. But Jesus knows his Bible well enough that he looks at Isaiah 61, and he begins to read it. He's standing. They would stand to read Scripture. And he says, you can look at this right in verse 18 with me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set free the oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Pretty normal Sunday morning that day or Saturday morning that day. Jesus opens Isaiah. These people would have heard it many times before. And what we have in this one passage from Isaiah is the through line that carries throughout all of the gospel of Luke. Because what we have here is Jesus's thesis statement. It's his mission statement, like Elliot mentioned. This is King Jesus's campaign platform. This is what he is all about. This is his change you can believe in. Yes, we can. His thousand points of light. His It's the economy, stupid. It, this is his platform for what his life and ministry would be all about. It is his mission. And he says the kinds of people that he is coming 
for, and the people he's coming for, are poor, captive, blind, oppressed. And he says that his message is going to be one of liberation and one of hope. And what Jesus in this statement is saying that he's coming for the people who are the outcasts, the screw-ups, the mess-ups, the lowly, the wash-ups, the people who can't get their act together and the people that know it. After all, the poor, the poor are the outcasts who don't have enough resources. They're the people who know that they're kind of, they, they don't have enough physical resources to make ends meet. They're the people who know they need help. Jesus comes for those people. The captives are those people who felt captive by Satan. The blind. The blind was a common occurrence at the time of Jesus. And in the Old Testament, blindness was sometimes seen as a result of sin. So blindness is a, as kind of a judgment. But Jesus comes to kind of give sight to the blind again. And the oppressed are those that are at the mercy of others who are held down. These are the people that Jesus comes for. Commentators say that Jesus comes for the shattered people. And then not only that, Jesus reads this passage, but then as he's reading it, he is claiming all of these for himself, that the Spirit of the Lord has anointed him to do these things. These are the people that Jesus comes for. So he does the scripture reading, and then everyone is waiting to hear what the teacher, Jesus, is going to say. After all, it's why some of them came, because he was such a great teacher. And in those times, you would read the text, and then you'd, they'd come and they'd sit down and explain the text. Can you imagine if I sat the whole time? Everyone would be asleep, but, but not with Jesus. He sits down, and people are, are kind of like leaning in a little bit. What's he going to say about this one? Jesus grabs his microphone and he looks at everyone and says, today, right now, this is being fulfilled in your hearing. Right? This is his mic drop moment. This is when everyone's like, oh my goodness, did he really say what I think he said? how do they respond? This brings us to our last point. Where we see the problem of Jesus' grace. Jesus claims fulfillment in what they were hearing. In their reaction, well, their first reaction, the crowd's first reaction is astonishment. Look at verse 22. It says, they were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, isn't this Joseph's son? They hear what Jesus is saying and they're just blown away. Like they're astonished. They're like, I can't believe that Jesus is saying this. Is this really true? They're kind of talking to each other. You can kind of get there's this buzz in the room about what Jesus is claiming. And they're like, dang, Joseph's kid, opening up the word like that. Isn't that amazing? And they're eating up what he's saying. And he's saying all this stuff about good news to poor, freeing captives. And you can almost 
Guess what the crowd is saying? This is a poor area of the world. They're saying good news to the poor. Boom, I'm poor. This is good news for me. And he's saying this stuff about the blind and yeah, 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 and the captives. Okay, have you seen Rome, Jesus? Like, we, we're the captive people here. We're the oppressed. And they count themselves by nature of their proximity to Jesus to be the very people that Jesus is referring to when he says all these words. And why wouldn't they think this? After all, they're in the synagogue, right? They're with the church people. And they're listening to Jesus claim all this stuff that about setting people free. And they're like, we get first dibs on that because he's Joseph's kid. This is his hometown. We must be the people who Jesus is coming for. And they thought their proximity to Jesus by nature of who he was and who they were, that, that Jesus is referring to them. But Jesus seems to think something different. And lest you think that Jesus was on a campaign to be liked, we, <laughs> Jesus actually rebuts their assumptions. Like he kind of knows their hearts. He replies to them in verse 23. And this is what he says. Look at it. He says, he says in response to their acknowledgement and their astonishment, no doubt you will quote a proverb to me, doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard that took place in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Jesus invokes this phrase, doctor, heal thyself. And this is kind of a common phrase for like what you're offering, prove. And what Jesus is saying is he is condemning them. He sees through their unbelief that that they don't really completely believe in who Jesus is. In fact, he's saying that they are going to be jealous of the work that he's about to do, which we'll see next week, and they'll want proof too. And then he goes further. So he says, you're not really all about me, even though you think you are. He goes further in verse 24 and says, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. (laughs) So Jesus like, eh, you're not who you think you are. You're not the inside. You're the outsiders, believe it or not. Even though you look like the insiders, you're the outsiders. And then he says, no prophet is actually welcome in his hometown. And everyone in that audience would have been like, what are you talking about, Jesus? We're not those people. But Jesus is saying that as prophets, we're not really loved in the Old Testament because they brought words from God that often stood against God's people, so these people are like those people back then. And he shares two stories, one about Elijah, one about Elisha, and these are, if you want to read, these are in First and Second Kings. And he shares two stories about where God's people are under judgment. The first is about a famine that's going on in the land. There's a wicked king, Ahab, and God's people are under judgment for not being faithful to God. And there's a famine going on in the land, and the person that gets provided for is a Gentile. And then he tells another story about a person with leprosy, and the person healed of their leprosy wasn't somebody among the people of God, but also a Gentile, a Syrian woman. And he's saying that, see people, 
you're the people in the stories that don't actually, that aren't actually on the same page as God. In fact, the good news is for the people you least expect. I don't think I've shared this here, but but back in 2004, I was in between my junior and senior year of college, and I, w- I was a volunteer at a local state representative's office, um, just one of the ways that I served. I was really politically interested at the time. And one day I received a phone call asking if I would be willing to greet President Bush as he um, stepped off of Air Force One, meet him at the bottom of the steps, and like welcome him to Pittsburgh. And I, you can imagine, as a high schooler, I was really, really excited about that opportunity, but there was one problem with it. I was in Phoenix, Arizona when I got the phone call. And there was no way I could get back to Pittsburgh and make it happen. And here's the thing. Though my relationships put me at an advantage, the opportunity to meet the president, the miles between me and the president couldn't be further. We were 3,000 miles apart. And it's the same way with the crowds, that though their physical proximity to Jesus, him being from their hometown and them being the religious people, though it seemed really close, they were 3,000 miles from Jesus because they did not actually believe in him. And the reaction from the crowds is that they lose their minds. And the amazement and the astonishment changes to rage. Because what Jesus was saying is that they were the outsiders. And that his grace is going to the people on the fringes, the unacceptable, the outsiders, and the people far away. As I was studying for this passage, like one of the things that I think haunts me about the text was that there is a category in the Bible that that these people, like they were amazed with Jesus. But as soon as Jesus started to like push into their lives a little bit, they were angry with him and they stiff-armed him to a point where they tried to throw him over a cliff. And I'm just a little bit fearful that that sometimes we can be amazed with who Jesus is. Like we hear his words, we're like, oh, Jesus, you come for the outcast. It's great. This good news is wonderful. But as soon as Jesus starts to push into our lives a little bit, we're like, whoa, Jesus, what are you doing? Like what good news? Like tell me more of the good stuff. And then we can stiff arm Jesus. Yeah, we might not throw him over, try to throw him over a cliff, but we might try to push him from our lives. And I think there's a risk of us making the same assumption as the people in the room that day. That we're the in crowd. That we're the close people to Jesus. We're here. We're in church. There's a, we fast forward to the end of the Bible. There's a passage where Jesus is talking to the church of Laodicea. 
And he says this, he says, I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I've become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. There is a danger, friends, in thinking we don't need anything. There is a danger in becoming too comfortable. And what Jesus says to this church is that they're actually wretched, pitiful, poor, and blind. And I think that's a warning for us. Jesus comes to the people who aren't just physically poor, but know that they're spiritually poor without him. Who know that they are lost without him. Who know that no matter what their like financial status is, that they have nothing without Jesus. That, that know that they are in desperate need of God's mercy each day. See, Jesus doesn't come for the people who are put together. He comes for the people who know they need him. And the, peop- the point is that people, that Jesus is willing to go to the, to the outcast, to the far off, to the people who know they need help, and that, that he will save those people. Not the people who think that they're entitled to it. Not the people who think they can earn it. And whenever we get to a place in our own spiritual lives where we think other people need Jesus more than we do, we are on dangerous ground. It's a bit cliche, but um, we all know one of the ways self-righteousness creeps in is whenever we hear a sermon and think someone else needs to hear this, right? And And I know that some of that just comes from a really good place of just wanting other people to have our relationships with Jesus. But sometimes... It's, we're quicker to apply the Bible to the lives of other people than we are ourselves. And I think what God wants for us is to be people who say, I am needy, I need mercy. God, what what do you want for me? There's another danger in this passage. So danger one is to forget that we need grace. Is and then the other danger is to forget that like there is no place, there is no person too far from Jesus. And I would caution that sometimes we can look at the lives or the lifestyles of other people and say they are too far gone. They're too far from grace. Or maybe we look at their politics and say, I can't believe they would think that. They're unhelp- unhelpable. Or whatever it might be, whatever we use to judge people in their lifestyles and think, eh, They're just too far gone. Well, the message of Jesus is that no one is too far gone, that he goes to the unlikely people. And I would just ask yourself, where in society are there people who are are oppressed, who are pushed aside, who are are, uh, poor sometimes, or, or who are captive? And I would just I would say to you that it is likely that those are some of the people who Jesus is eager to save and willing to save. 
because it is at the fringes where people know they need help. Jesus can reach the furthest from him. And if you're here, and maybe you just feel like, Jesus, how do I know he came for me? I would just encourage you, friend, to hear Jesus' words, to hear Jesus claim this passage from Isaiah 61 and 58 for himself, and to realize that if you're here, and you're like, man, I got nothing, I just but I know I need Jesus and Jesus came for you. No matter what your life looks like, that Jesus invites you to believe in him and to know that Christ is able to save to the uttermost. Those who know they need him. He comes for the people who are spiritually poor, who know they need his life to sustain them.